Why would someone who loves movies and writing quit the film business? You know, it's interesting. We get into an industry that seems so romantic to other people, and they'll say that. People have said that to me. Oh my God, how could you have been working in movies and, and leave? Almost like we're beholden to that, and now we're not allowed to go have, you know, a new career. And even though there are many aspects of movies that I loved and continue to love, um, there were a lot of areas that were challenging like distribution for your movie, financing your movie, and you'd spend years putting together a film, writing it, finding the team, finding the money, you put a labor of love into it, and then nobody would buy it and nobody would see it. And that to me just was a little bit too heartbreaking for longer than 20 years. And so you made a feature film, was it, at 19? I made 11 films and I started at 21. And the first couple ones, Callista Flockhart, who ended up becoming Allie McBeal, she was in a film that we were sort of an associate producer on, which is kind of how you get started when you're young. In, in, I don't know if it's the same now, but back in the day, that's, that's what it was. And what that basically meant was, is we found something for free, basically. <laughs> Because that's how you operated then, because everybody was on such a shoestring. And then after that, you know, now you say, oh, I've been an associate producer, right? So then you get an opportunity to be an associate producer on another film. And then next thing you know, it's just you start to learn more. And then you're able to start taking on producer, producer credits. Did anyone sit you down in the beginning and say, you know, this is a this is a get ready to wait type of a business and people will tell you all sorts of stuff and then you'll never hear from them again? Or did you have to learn that? There were no mentors. We had women in film, which I didn't find, I found was a little uh, like non-inclusive. Um, and so you'd volunteer, I did a couple volunteering gigs there. And then I was like, I don't know, I don't know. It just, it, 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 as a woman in a man's business, and especially as a young woman, you didn't really want to let people know that you didn't know. So there was a lot of kind of fumbling around in the dark to, you learn from your mistakes basically. So when you'd make one mistake, you're like, well, let's not make that mistake again. <laughs> when you worked in Hollywood, producer, writer, production coordinator, did you have any other jobs at no, that time? No, I didn't. I, in the very beginning, I was a temp. So when I was in New York City, I had some pretty crazy temp jobs and, um, we were making this movie. We were kind of getting ready to make this movie at, at the time. And I was really stoked because I was, I think it was at like Lehman Brothers or like one of the like, I don't remember what the bank was that the guy went and sold everything and crashed the whole bank. I was there like working for the person, I think. I, I, I try to, I can't remember exactly, but I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I think I reported to his office. But they had these like massive, Xerox machines. So we needed what was called um, pages and we also needed the schedule printed on like blue paper and green paper and pink paper and we had no money. This is awful, but this is what you would do to make movies is I would sneak into the copy room and when no one was looking at my damn job, I'd whip out like 400 copies of, you know, a colored schedule for the, for the production. Okay. All right. <laughs> so. And no one found out? 
No, I was pretty wily. Okay. <laughs> and I did my job. I did okay. my job. I got my job done. But he was a little bit too in the in the movie business that I felt there was this like justification that as I grew into more integrity in my life, and especially the business I'm in now, my company, A Story Inside, I had to look back and there were a lot of things that you were kind of expected to do or thought you had to do to for the art. And I look back now and I think that was one of them. It's like I was stealing. If you think about it, sure. that wasn't my paper. They were not paying me for that job. And we would do other things like, you know, fill water bottles that we had gotten. We'd bought maybe one Poland spring bottle and then we'd fill it with a hose for the rest of the production, but we wouldn't tell anybody. You know, just, oh. you know, and then you'd be like, well, it saves money and it's for the art. And I, I just, over time, you start to think, I don't want to try to unpay people and rip people off anymore. It just doesn't feel like that's what that art should be. Sure, sure. And and was that later on after you left the film industry that you sort of had yeah. that sort of making amends type Moment. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, I think because it was every, you know, like everybody did it, there was just not, I mean, we were pretty, you know, we were pretty sneaky in New York. We made some pretty, we did some pretty sneaky things. I think, I remember there was a story, we didn't do anything dangerous. Like we didn't put anybody's lives at risk. And I remember there was that film where they were like, they didn't have a permit and they were shooting on the railroad tracks and a couple people died. Wasn't that here in California recently? And I was just thinking, oh, no, we didn't cross that line. Yeah. We worked in some pretty scary places. We didn't cross that line. Interesting. And then you left the film And then industry? I left. Mm -hmm. Voluntarily or the economy? It was kind of like I had a baby in 2005. We left uh, Los Angeles to, uh, you know, maybe have a little bit more of like a suburban life, which almost killed me. Um, it was a little too suburban for me. It was like I went from Echo Park in LA, which is really rough and like artists, over to suburban San Jose. And just there wasn't really any access to any film anymore. Um, I tried to keep writing screenplays. Um, I did write one in 2010, and that was the last one. And so contrary to what people say that you can be anywhere and be writing a script, did you feel that to be true? No. I think you have to be in Los Angeles to take the meetings, meet the people, collaborate with others on their projects, right place, right time, know the attorneys, know the agents. I, I, I don't think you can do it anywhere else. Have people fought you on that? Or I mean, I haven't really talked to anybody about it in a while, um, but I think there's those few movies that are made in other places that originate from other places, you know, that are made in Florida and they break through, but the breakthrough is typically through agents or people that are in LA that like might see the film and suggest it for a festival or they're involved in Sundance. Um, I think there's some component that has to be in Los Angeles. But you did write a script while you were in the Bay Area? Correct? Yeah, I did, I did. And those people had contacted me from my contacts in LA. Ah, so I see. So they weren't people I met in the Bay Area. When you told people in the Bay Area that you were in the film industry previously or that you were writing a script, what was their reaction? I don't really think I told anybody. Oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. A closet screenwriter. Okay. I like it. I don't think they, they like, they had nothing to do with the film business. They were like, 
they would have been like, okay. Okay, I see, right. Would <laughs> it's have like scared the mom's them. group, you know uh, what I mean? Okay. So they were talking about kids. I see, okay. So it would never came up. Yeah, meanwhile, I was writing that, like, you know, horrific torture script. So I don't think it would have been, like, great conversation. Sure. You wouldn't have been invited to the birthday party. Exactly. Yeah. They would okay. be like, look, look out, watch out for her. <laughs> right, right. You took a part-time job at Trader Joe's, mm -hmm. one of my favorite stores. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about how that transition came about? And sure. I think whenever, like, you leave something that's your identity... You know, I, since I was little, I always, you know, was talking into a hairbrush. And so I've actually discovered, I always thought that was an actress or eventually I thought it was a filmmaker. And lately I've realized it's, I want to be a talk show host, right? And so, you know, you wake up to that in your fifties and you're like, oh my God. And it's all these transitions we have to go to. And I like to call it like the breaking down of the ego self, right? To really get under what it is you really want to do. And I had come back to Los Angeles, gotten divorced and had two small kids and didn't want to go back in the movie business. I didn't want to go back and be like a production assistant. I had done there, been there, done that. And I felt I would probably have to start in the beginning again. And to me, just getting a job at Trader Joe's just seemed like it's where it's like somewhere safe for eight hours to just be a worker among workers, which I really felt I needed to do. I honestly did not 100% need the money. My ex-husband was working. Um, but that $11 an hour, I had not made a paycheck in a little while. And that $11 an hour was like really special to me. Oh, sorry. I remember when the manager, they had reviews. I've never been reviewed in my life. I've always been my own boss. And he took me outside and he said, Kim, the one big note we have for you is it's time for you to step up to your true potential. And I just started sobbing <laughs> on a bench in Westwood. And I think he was like, oh my God, because it hit, it was so true that this guy had seen this in me, you know? And he was like, okay, well, we're gonna give you your 30 cent raise. I was like, thank you, thank you so much. And it. It just really made me see how I'd always been kind of hiding in the shadows. So from having retail jobs myself, you know, you you interact with so many people. Some are wonderful, some maybe not so much, but there's always interesting characters. Were you watching some of the patrons come in, even though you were busy working, I'm sure, but oh, yeah. one eye was like, you know, that would make a great character right there. I didn't really think of it as like, because I was having an experience on such a personal level, like I'm sure in my writing, cause I still write, I write all the time, but I, you know, I think that those, you know, they come, you remember them, but at the moment I wasn't like, oh, that's a good character. Like versus when I was in the film business, I was always like that. But now I was just having the experience with people as, it was almost freeing. It was like, it wasn't for anything. It was just to have the experience. And the people that I worked with, there was a guy who, was a, you know, he had been a convict and we commiserated over tattoos and I went to his tattoo guy and there were just, there was like a, a, a two guys that were married and like I got to know them. And so just to getting to know, there was a, a another worker who had lost a baby at like six months and we would hug every morning. Mm. Nobody needed to say anything. We were just like two people trying to process. And so there was a lot of that beautiful energy in that store. And then there were the people that would come in. There were the moms 
who were going to the same, kids went to the same school as my kid down the street. And they would come in and they would like kind of corner me and they'd be like desperate to get divorced, but they didn't know if they could financially support themselves. So they wanted to know how I did it. I'm like, I'm not financially supporting myself yet on Trader Joe's, but you know, here, you know, you got to make the leap and you got to know, you know, you got to figure it out. And they were just so fascinated by my courage to work there. And um, there were some very self-entitled people. Um, my daughters love this story. There was a woman who came in, uh, you could do what's called carry out service, where you don't really have to have a reason. You don't have to be handicapped or anything. You can just demand carry out service, right? And this woman demanded the carry out service. And as we're, as I'm pushing her cart, she turns around and looks at me and she goes, run. And I was like, every East Coast punky part of me was just like, I am gonna tell this woman where to put it. <laughs> and so instead I just slowed down and I just got the cart there and I walk back in and two of my friends that work there were just sort of waiting for me and they look at and they go, so how did that go? And I was like, oh my God, you guys didn't warn me. And they're like, oh my God, we can't stand that woman. And it was like, she does that to everybody. She's wow. like, we are there for her, Sure, you know? Um, and then there was an, a, couple, um, a man who got uh, racially, um, verbally abusive with an Iranian woman. And it was like, you don't, she wasn't moving fast enough. This is like the Trader Joe's I worked at, we would have these peak hours where every register, all eight would be full. And you'd just be so stressed. And so then for something explosive to happen at your station was like, it was just, it puts you into like a state of shock. And he said something about like, you know, learn how to use your card, you, and he called her a slur name. And she just turns around and she's like, I'm a MD and, and they just started going at it. And the manager had to come over and it was, we had some intense stuff. So at that time, had you been writing uh, your memoir or that I was had not come? even come to terms with, I don't think I had even had the dream about the sexual abuse yet. So the memoir is about waking up and realizing that I had been sexually abused for most of my childhood. So I had not woken to that yet. Um, I think that was, one year after. And so with dreams, you'd always been empathic, so you've always been very sensitive to picking up. I didn't know I was until in the last six years. Yeah, I've really stepped into that. I probably have been my whole life. It's just, you can suppress that stuff and just not even know what that is until you start kind of being in circles with people that are empathic, that are intuitive, that start to tell you you're psychic, you start to see energy move in the direction in which your thoughts are empowering it. And so um, I do believe abuse survivors have an extra dose of that because of the disassociation. Right, and having to be hyper aware of their surroundings. Yeah, like for that. survival, mm -hmm. right. So at what point did you think about writing what happened? Did people talk you out of it? I didn't tell anybody. I just started doing it. Like I just knew that I had to write this book and I knew that writing the book was the way through. 
which is what I tell a lot of my book clients. It's like, just write the story, just work your way through it. Just get that first draft down because what you're going to then share to the reader who needs you, that'll come out in that second draft once you get it all down. So I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, and then later just kind of readjusted it to like, some of the anger or some of the, some, some stuff that was a little bit too journaly I took out just to really, so I could, I wanted to put it into categories for people like explaining how sexual abuse affects every area of your life, sexuality, spirituality, capacity to make money, masculine and feminine energy, everything. It somehow skews your perception in all those areas. And so I just kind of broke it down by the way I saw my life having been dictated about with the abuse without even really knowing that's what was happening. Did you confront the person? He was dead. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, forgive me if this is too personal and then we can stop if it is. Uh, did you talk to other people that may have been around at that time? I did. I Part of the process was I called my mom because it was my dad and um, received a big dose of, I, don't, I didn't know, f f there. And then called my cousin, so I'd been close with growing up. And actually called not both, I actually only called one of the three cousins who, I, who I'm more close to. And he was just so sympathetic and devastated. And no, nobody denied it. You know, told my one aunt, his mom, and tried to tell my sister. She didn't want to hear it. It's just so interesting, your family, like who will, you know, my daughter, my teenage daughter, who's now 15 and a half, <clears throat> I'm not going to beat myself up about it, but I did tell her fairly young. I think she was 12, 13, as old as my current 12 year old is now who knows nothing. And I think because she was the firstborn, it was sort of like, you look at them as more ready to handle it. She came to a book signing. And she went through a lot of fear for a little while about the legacy of our family. She was afraid of like how it was gonna be carried down, even though there's no, we've already broken the legacy. There's no abuse in our structure. So um, it's one of those things I learned, like we need to empower our children, but they're still, it's still like, it's still a very scary subject. For, for young people. Can you talk about making decisions from high self-esteem versus low self-esteem? Sure. I think now the decisions that I make are, you know, really looking at like what I want as in the bigger picture versus the day to day, like everything used to be so important day to day, like the outcome of what you know, the voices in my head and what they would say, you know, like, oh, you didn't do that right, or you didn't make enough money, or that person's not happy, or I can't change anybody's opinion. I can't make anybody happy, and I can't necessarily make anybody sad unless I've done something erroneous, which I could apologize for. But the higher, the higher self-esteem is definitely from that place of more thinking, I'm good. Like, I've got this. Like, I'm on the higher ground. Like, I know where I'm going. Like, the world, everything that I want is already available to me versus before, and this was a lot in the movie business, just a lot of just uh, financial chaos, you know, fearing 
being, you know, like uh, criticized or just not being enough, you know? I don't feel that way now. And do you think a large part of it has to do with the dream and sort of coming clean with your past, even though it was no fault of your own, but just realizing what happened and what you had suppressed? Oh, yeah. I I think when you've been abused, there's a natural feeling that you're damaged goods and that like you're dirty, right? And you and especially if you haven't faced it, you just are like confused while you're why you're um why you feel different, you know, inside. And a lot of abuse survivors um turn to drugs and alcohol to just because it's just some there's something wrong, but they don't know what it is, right? So you're in the unknown where for some people, I mean, even now the unknown can be like, oh my God, but like you're in the unknown and it's like, um, it's almost like you're dying. It's that painful, right? Because you're, you're untethered to something, right? Like you might not be tethered to the abuser anymore, but you're, you, you, and there, if you don't have faith, then you're not tethered there. So drugs and alcohol are a great, great way for you to feel powerful because you're making a decision to do something. I'm gonna get messed up and I'm gonna be messed up. And that's a clear cut decision and outcome where everything else really involves other people. And you can also hang out with other people like-minded. That are wanna do it too. Right. Oh right. yeah. It's a very social thing. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. In my 30s, I hung out with just a, just a, just terrible people that did all sorts of drugs. And I don't know if they had any abuse in their history. I'm probably, I mean, they were, it was again, it was like, oh, we're filmmakers. <laughs> That's what filmmakers do. They do a lot of drugs. Um, and then it just is not, just doesn't work anymore. A comedian, I mean, I, you know, when, when I moved back, when I moved to LA and in my thirties, like, when I first got this whole thing going in LA, um, there were a lot of just people that were doing a lot of drugs. Do you think that's why the Trader Joe's experience was also, because you could, felt you could just be yourself with mm -hmm. the workers, whereas with the mom's group, you had to be- <laughs> Something, you, right. You couldn't, uh, you didn't want to scare a mom. <laughs> right. You know, With who I really was, right. They could be the same way, but right. they didn't want to have that out Go there. Go there. It's true. At Trader Joe's, we were just all a bunch of misfits. It was so, so true. And I feel most comfortable. I, I'm, I'm someone that can kind of get along with everybody, but I'm always going to have a little bit of like a, I like people with a little bit more of like a edge. You know, that the, like the thing kind of, like we can laugh about the way we think and it's a little nutty and we don't have to be too apologetic because life is just life. And yeah, I don't do well with a lot of like um, surficial relationships. And were you like that before the memoir? Or, or that's Yes, but you? in a very angry way. So there was a lot of anger. You know, like, why am I feeling like this all the time? There's a lot of yelling. I have a whole section in the book where I talk about the rage and how you're just constantly just yelling at people and you don't know why 
and you don't know what's behind all that rage, right? And and movies were a great place for that because again, it was justified. I'm painting such a horrible picture of the movie business. I loved making movies, by the way, and there were a lot of beautiful people, and I had a lot of great experiences. But for me, it was a it was you it was okay for you to scream at somebody. Where now I'm like, that's completely unacceptable. If I'm even snippy with someone on my team now, I apologize. I send them like a coffee card. But maybe that, you know, maybe it is. Maybe it is. I think it's, I think it has to do with recovery from abuse. I think you do start to see and you you do start to feel what it feels like. Hurt people hurt people. So if you're not hurt anymore, you're not really wanting to hurt anybody anymore. And then I think you start to evolve on the other side of like, well, if I'm not a hurt person, then who am I actually going to be? Um, a, a girlfriend of mine wrote a TV show. And this was seven years ago when I was just kind of, I had been substitute teaching and I had written my book. I was starting to kind of get get my feet going. And no, I don't think I'd even written my book yet, but I had come to terms with the abuse. And she asked me to produce a pilot. And I was like, I'm not going to produce a pilot. Like I'm not going back in the business. And she's no, we're going to have a great time and I'll pay you. It'll be really fun. And, and I was like, okay. And I was newly, newly, I had stopped drinking. So I was clean as a whistle and I was like, all right, it's worth it. And then someone said to me when the job was done and we had, we had a great time. And when the job was done, someone said to me, you know, why don't you poll the people that worked for you and ask them what, they thought of you. And I was like, so moved that not a single person called me a yeller. No one said I was aggressive. They said when I came in the room, they knew help was here, that I made them laugh, that I was always the last one to leave. And I was like, what? And I knew that something big had changed in my life. And then I thought, oh, I want to make a movie like this. (laughs) It's the one thing I kind of wish that I could make a movie as the new me, because I would show up on that film set very differently, very differently than I would have back then. It would, I would have fun. What's the inciting incident in your book? It would be waking up from the dream, absolutely. <clears throat> and sitting in my living room and really thinking, oh, I know. And then uh, what do I do now? that's the inciting incident. There's a whole journey that comes from that. And and most people, like clients that I work with in their books, it's usually that that one, it's not always like the most exciting moment necessarily. It's that that inside moment where you know something's going to change forever. And it did. When you went to sleep the night before, had you watched a movie? Did something happen? Do you think triggered it or no? It was just, it was just time. It was just time. Why did you procrastinate writing for so long? I know you had this realization, but didn't weren't there other things you were putting off? Yeah, I mean, I think that I had to go through a lot of different experiences so that I could know what to write about. So if I had just started writing right away from the dream, and I was, I was journaling everything. So I had a lot of good material, but I hadn't lived enough yet to really see the difference, right? So like I had to be a recovered, I had to be a survivor for a little while before I felt like I could really look at what I had slighted myself in, in living. 
to write about what I could potentially have. And my second book, which is written and it's sitting in my laptop, is all about the next steps, which is you've put in a bunch of years as a survivor. You've seen the change and you're ready to leave behind that past of how you used to live and you're ready to kind of now take this new you into another level of your life. But um, I am procrastinating on it. <laughs> I've decided I want to write another book that's a lot more fun. So that can happen sometimes, you can get distracted. But I do believe everything is in the right time. So um, I know that my first book got published, so I know that another one will. And I've actually <clears throat> taken that book down, the first memoir. Um, I took the rights back from the publisher in December. I don't feel like the service was done, that it deserves. People read it and they go, this is like the most amazing book I've ever read on abuse. This should be a worldwide book and the publisher did not do a good job. So, um, and neither did I, frankly, because today you have to be behind your book 100%. You can't rely on a publisher at all. And so I've taken the book rights back. I'm actually doing a second edition on it. I'm gonna rename it and I'm gonna put it out under my own publishing label. Why rename it? Kicking abuse in the ass was a very sort of, yeah, kind of title, right? And I want it to reach more people, so now I'm going to call it Awoken. Uh, okay. Are you? Do you think the title might scare certain people? Uh, I, I, I want to go more direct, I think. What I've learned with my clients and helping them come up with book titles and, and chapter headings, there's like, there's a, there's a fine line between clever and kind of not really telling people what you're gonna do for them in the book. Like kicking abuse in the ass, it wasn't really what I was doing in the book, 100%. It wasn't like I was going in there and slaying it. I was really being reflective. Why do you think most writers procrastinate? Oh, a whole, I could give you the longest list. I hear, I've heard everything um, from I'm afraid of being famous uh, what will I do with all my time when I'm famous? How am I going to take care? Um, I don't want to upset my family members. Um, I don't know if I can finish something I've started so they don't even start. Uh, I'm not, I don't have a writing degree. Like I don't have like a, you know, a, I'm not a graduate of the Iowa State writing, you know, writing conference. So why bother? Um, a lot of, a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons. I can't find time in my schedule. I don't understand what kind of support I need. I don't know what kind of structure there should be. A million reasons. You had talked about you were looking to maybe one day direct, uh, write and direct as the new Kim, what, what you saw as the new Kim. Do you think people don't know what the new self would be? as this author, if that, like you talked about this fear of being famous, whatever, but also too, they'd be taking on this new persona that maybe they'd be leaving victimhood or whatever behind and now, can you talk about that? Oh, like yeah. the new persona and how you transformed into that. I love that. This question is such a beautiful question because it comes up actually more in the class I run called Own Your Authorship, where it's sort of that chasm between like, they have the desire to tell their story, but the yes feels like kind of far, you know? And people come in and they they take the class and they're like a little bit like, who are you? And who do you, you know, a little bit uh, like not chip on their shoulder, but you know, let's see what you got, you know? And I just work them till 
you know, we turn, we do a prompt that's called, I hate you because, and many people write about themselves. And then I make them go back and write it about someone else. And they go, well, I don't want to hate somebody else. I go, well, you know, you do. So why don't you tell us about it? Like, if you're going to get honest, get honest now. We're not going to email it to them. Just write it. And I think that that's um, where they start to unlock and they start to see themselves and, and start to be okay. And then they just really, like, you see a shift immediately where they're, they're realizing, wait a minute, like, I have a story to tell. And then we do, you know, come find a picture of yourself in your 20s. Some groups I'll do little kids. Like, I'll kind of intuitively gauge the group. I can tell very early on what I need to do with people. I'm very intuitive that way. And from that, writing about where they came from, you just see them start to just like light up. And then we talk about the author persona. <clears throat> what is your author persona? Like, who would you be if you were like a successful author? What does that look like? Would you have your own jet? Are you doing a book tour worldwide? Or is this where you make all your income and you see a lot of the like, well, I don't know. I mean, is that, well, we're not saying that's going to happen or not happen. I just want you to write about it, you know? And so a lot of the resistance is the, um, it's almost like they feel like they're saying something that's not true by writing about it, even though it's a dream they have. So if you can get them to write about the dream, then the dream suddenly doesn't seem so far-fetched. What do you think your biggest resistance was to writing? I think for me, a lot of it was time. I was single parenting, trying to build a business, and I literally did not have any time. I also did not hire a coach, which I should have done. When I finally hired an editor, everything moved really fast because I was ready. <clears throat> but I think I just, I, I, you know, I didn't take my own medicine. You know, I didn't bring in someone. I was telling everybody that were my clients how important it is to be coachable and I wasn't co being coached. So I'd say my resistance was I didn't think I, that I was worthy of exactly what I tell my clients to believe they're worthy of. How do you know you have the right coach? So I'm sure there's a gazillion coaches, editors out there. You know, there's not a lot of book coaches um, that necessarily do a white glove service. I don't hear about a lot of them. I hear about, you know, editors that might edit your book over 90 days or, um, and I'm doing more of like a, a deep dive into like the whole purview of the person. Like, what do you want to, what does this book mean to you? Like, what do you want to be with this book? Like, I often help people come up with um, trademarkable systems or uh, business ideas or mantras that they can actually then claim as their own through the writing of the book that they couldn't see before. I'll be like, that's brilliant. Nobody else is doing that. And they'll be like, oh my God, yeah. So I'm not sure that that's so much of just an editor. I think that is definitely more of a coach because I'm seeing the human potential in that person through what they're sharing with me about who they are. Um, and then we happen to be writing a book through it all. So is this someone who already has a first draft finished no, that's coming to you? No, I don't take people typically on that have a first draft because then we'd have to break it all up and then I'm just putting glue on something that's probably broken. So I like to work with people from the very, very start. 
So if I call you and say, or email you and say, I would like to write about my life. I don't even have an outline. I'm just telling you this is my desire and we're going to go from there and structure yeah. it together. Yep. Wow. Yeah, that's the that's my favorite way to work because we really just start from the from scratch. You know, we do the outline together and then we go through um, eight months of work. What are some of the first questions you ask someone? It really depends on the people. I mean, I don't have a formula more than outline day, first draft, second draft, third draft, get the book published. Um, I ask them a lot of questions before I do the outline day with them and kind of ask them about, you know, tell me about three amazing moments in your life. You know, write to me about what you think about yourself. What were some of your greatest accomplishments? Um, if they've told me a little bit about uh, something that happened in their life or why they became a coach or uh, why they've been a binge eater or, you know, what it was like in the Navy. I'll say, give me a couple scenes on that because from that I can sort of get a tone of what it would be. And then, and a lot of that is movie business work, you know, kind of seeing what the scenes are and then wrapping around the scenes a narrative for the book. Do you ever ask them the why? Yeah, we do that knowing your authorship. We work out the why generally because people that are not ready to write a book the reason is because they're not confident in their why. So that's why I have them take the class. People that come to me ready to be a private client, they're pretty rock, they, they've got a really good why. It might be a little bit smaller than they think. Like I'll find a bigger why, but generally they come in with like, this is what I'm writing about. And I don't have to like work it. So these aren't wishy-washy people on the fence. They're they're like there's no fence people that okay. do my one year. No, there's not a lot of convincing. <laughs> I like to say like if someone comes to me for a one year, they're usually like there's no sell. They're just in. But if I'm on the phone with someone for a really long time, then generally they're not going to be a client right away. Do you talk to your clients about if they write something traumatic, what they may feel physically? Oh yeah, I've had clients go down for the count for a couple weeks. Um, just pure exhaustion of just sort of re like reliving something or realizing, putting the patterns together. There's, there's some dismay. Um, there's some anger. You know, we feel so much in our bodies as creatives. Um, and sometimes they're connecting to themselves in that way for the first time. And so some things are kicked off if they have like, you know, an autoimmune or something like that. Um, I don't do like a medical intake form, but I will, you know, um, I kind of gauge it as we go. Like I won't, I don't want to scare them and then put on them someone else's experience. Like, oh, such and such wrote about such and such and she was out for the count. Like, cause they might not be that person. They might muscle through. But I, I do watch for it. Did that happen to you? Yeah. I, um, right after the, and it hadn't, it wasn't the writing yet. So this is another reason why I was delayed with the book. <clears throat> right after I came to terms with the abuse, I um, got an autoimmune disorder called achalasia. And that's in like one in 200,000 people. And it's literally your voice. Wow. So it's just too, it's just too like connected to discount it. But it, um, 
I, you asked the question about the high, you know, the high self-worth and the low self-worth because I was so, I took care of myself. Like I took care of myself on all like this, but inside of me, I hadn't taken care of myself in so long that, um, I just thought for like nine months that I was having like GERD or like some kind of like, um, regurgitation. I was having a lot of regurgitation and then I was getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And I remembered, and then I couldn't eat. And then I went to see my regular doctor and I walked into her office and she, the look on her face when she saw me and she said, have you looked in the mirror at yourself? And she dragged me over to the mirror and I had like an abscess on my chin. I was gaunt. My, and she did all these labs and my blood was um, attacking me. And they literally had to find a specialist with achalasia within two weeks. And I was in a massive surgery in three weeks. And so that it's an autoimmune disorder and it was brought out. I think it was brought out. I think it was probably always suppressed, but I think when you just open up, sometimes you're going to get the good and sometimes you're going to get the ugly. And that was definitely an ugly situation. So how long did that keep you debilitated for? That was, um, I mean, the recovery from it was pretty quick. Once they do the surgery, you're, you're better. Like you're better in five days. Um, but just like getting my system back going, you know, when your body hasn't intake, hasn't taken in any food really for a long time, everything has to re-wake up. So it was kind of symbolic. Everything started waking up. Plus you get into this and a lot of women talk about this, like getting better is not getting skinny. So I had kind of fallen into this whole, I'm skinny. And then when my body started course correcting back to what I should be, there was a lot of like, oh my God, like I'm getting fatter and I didn't sign up for this. And so there was a lot of looking at, you know, the pluses and minuses of my story. Like, when am I going to be Kim for real? And then that started to catch up. And that's about when I started to write the book. What is a memoir? A memoir is writing about people's, their lives and something that they've experienced that they think is extraordinary. I mean, if you think about a classic one, The Glass Castle, um, which was about a woman who just had this horrendous childhood and she's looking back at it from being, I think she was in, very successful in business. So you almost can't believe what she'd been through to get to where she was. Um, it's just a retelling of it's a retelling of your life. And there's a new sort of hybrid that's kind of crept into the marketplace and that's the self-help piece in the memoir. And that's a, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say my book is as much memoir as it is self-help because I'm not taking you to the past. I'm staying pretty much in a small, like a microcosm of adulthood. I'm not talking about my childhood at all. So your, your recount, your, your adult Kim thinking back, having this dream, sharing with the reader, waking up and the realization. And then looking back at sort of my adult life, why I behaved the way I behaved in my adult life. There's nothing we can do about any of it anyway. 
going back to the childhood's not going to necessarily give me any answers except for like the original self, right? Which you were when you the day you were born and then from there on it started to get messed with anyway. So I didn't have a lot of memories of, I didn't want to write a tell all about abuse. My situation was not violent and it wasn't um, like particularly traumatic. It was uh, almost like a continuing dream of events that would come up in my memory and I would think, oh, that was odd that day we went down that dirt. Why did we go down that dirt road? But that was it. Like my mind was not wanting me to know more than that. And so I made the decision that it would serve my reader better if I focused on what I feel the abuse had created for me as problems and what I was starting to become. Had you read a lot of other memoirs? I know you mentioned the one no. before, but no, you hadn't. No. I think I there's one called like They Call Me Dave or whatever. No. There's some really great yeah. things about people remembering. Yeah, I hadn't read any. I didn't want to have any anybody's else's, you know, uh, experience to affect my journey. So you didn't want to sort of mimic the writing style or Yeah, and I and I tend to with writers who are writing memoirs, I might give them a memoir to read, but I often will give them books on writing to read or something that would not be like at all in their category necessarily because I don't want to put that on them. Like I don't want them to start judging their book against this other book. What are some of those writing books that you give them? Uh, writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg is like an amazing writer. It's like probably the best book about writing memoir. Um, anything Anne, Anne Lamont writes is just just read Anne Lamont. I mean, for her wit and her use of description and the way she just sort of moves a narrative along. Um, the War of Art uh, is another phenomenal book. I'm forgetting his name right now. Stephen Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield. That is um, an excellent book. There was a book called How to Read as a New York Times writer or author, and I'm not remembering her name, but it's literally like, she broke down every book that's great to read by, if you want to learn about voice, if you want to learn about structure, if you want to learn about narrative, if you want to learn about flashback. And I remember at one point in time, I got the book and I read them, I read everything. Just reading, we, we don't read enough. And you become a better writer when you read. Yeah, Anne Lamott's uh, TED Talk is great too. You know, she she puts a lot of humor. Yeah, and, she's and very, she's very funny. easy to relate to. Yeah, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, enjoy listening to Bay Area person. As yep, well. she is. Yep. <laughs> Do you think it's important for anyone who wants to write a book to begin writing a memoir? Is that the first step to writing a book, or if someone wants to write a narrative that's you mean like fiction, mm -hmm. or oh, I think anybody should write whatever they want to write. If you don't want to write a memoir, don't write a memoir because it's definitely a very specific style of book. If you want to write a psychological thriller, you know, learn how to write a psychological thriller. If you want to learn how to, um, you know, write a, like Anne Lamont, like journal sort of uh, witty repartee kind of book, write that. Um, and there's, you know, different classes you can take in those specific areas. For me, I can coach anybody because I'm not specifically a writing teacher, 
right? So I'm not gonna come in and teach you how to be a better psychological thriller writer. I'm gonna help you have a better writer voice for you, but I'm not necessarily an expert in the psychological thriller. I might be an expert on great characters or a great plot. So sometimes people ask me that. They're like, well, there seems to be like a formula with certain books. And I'm like, wow, is there? I don't know, because that's not my genre. What are some common mistakes you see new writers make that once they're at a professional level, you don't see as much? So what would, so a professional level is an interesting term because what would that be? I mean, I, I say to um, my clients, the minute you've made a decision to write a book, you are now a professional author and you need to think that way. And if you have to take a post-it and you have to put it on your desk that says, I am a professional author or I am an author, you need to do that. You need to put it everywhere in your house until you actually believe that you are of the same quality as anybody else. There's no like distinction between you and the person who's super famous or is a New York Times bestseller. You have to own that within you first. And I think once they step to that, then it's really just, it's time to work on the craft. And there's certain writers that take to this, the art of writing like a duck to water. They will take direction really quickly. They'll, you know, they're not afraid of us doing a first draft and then me saying, okay, let's rip it apart because the middle of the book should be where we start the book and this scene, this chapter should mix with this chapter and I think we might need a different ending because that's what happens when you do the first draft. The second draft is really where the magic happens. There are some people that are not afraid of that. They're like, let's, they roll over there, let's, let's do it. And there's other people that are like, oh my God, what does that mean? Like, we just, I just did this for like 12 weeks. Now you're gonna, we're gonna rip it apart. What is that? And there, there's a lot more fear of the process, right? Which is understandable because they just did a process that they were not comfortable with. They just, they were like, oh, phew, I just got through that. And now we have, oh, there's another process. But inevitably, everybody at the end of the second draft sees the light at the end of the tunnel, no matter where they were in the first draft. They're all like, this is good. Some are more like, a little bit like we're onto something and other other people are like, oh my God, this is I, I'm so excited. Like this is magic, like magic has happened. So I think by the end of the second draft, they all kind of feel like professional writers. Some of them might hang on a little bit to, uh, they might start to, as it gets closer to like going out and looking for a publisher. Well, do you think my writing's good? Like, are you sure it's up to standard? Do you think my writing's good enough? And, you know, it's just assurance. It's like, it's not that you're right. It's not whether your writing's right or wrong. It's, are you communicating in a clear, entertaining and effective way, something that's going to inspire the reader and drive them to take some kind of action in their life, right? Like, uh, maybe you're, you're, you're espousing some kind of new philosophy. Have you done a good enough job having them actually sit up and go, I never thought about that. I'm going to, I'm I'm gonna change the way I do that in my life, which is what a lot of great books will do. Why would someone be afraid to go through the first draft? Whereas others are like, yeah, let's do it. Rip it apart, like, tell me the truth. I think just that, 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 there's, that there's a banality, even there's like a conflict, right? So on one hand, they've been told for years by everybody under the sun, you should write a book. And so they believe, and then there's underneath a little part of them that believes that, right? But they're coming in a little bit driven on external forces, 
right? So they'll come in and they'll be like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. Kind of because everybody else said I should do it. And I kind of believe I should do it. So I'm going to write this thing. But there's in the back of their mind still that like self-defeating mindset that's like, and it's often can be a voice that says, who cares? Does this really matter? Like you're spending all this time and energy like putting this out because what? The valet said you should write a story because your aunt Mary said you should write a story. I don't know. This seems like a lot of time and a lot of money. You're spending a lot of time with that Kim lady. How do you even know she's qualified? Like what even are her credentials? And I joke about this sometimes when I do talks about what that voice will do to try to keep you safe, right? Because you've been safe. You've gotten so far. Your ego's like, we're cool. We're good. And now all of a sudden you're like, but I actually want to tell them. And the ego's like, no, wait a minute. We've been good without you telling all these stories. Why do you want to upset the apple cart now? So that's more what I see coming into play. And it comes in all different ways. It comes in tears. It comes in argumentativeness. It comes in, you know, I see it all. I have a lot of very strong willed personality clients and I see it come out in all different ways. What about a third draft? Oh, the third draft is just heaven because we've ripped it apart. We've put it back together. We know exactly what the book is and now we get to do like a lot of bells and whistles. So, um, Maybe we didn't find a system in the book that we knew would have to be there. I use my client, Alan Maxwell, a lot for this example. He had written a, a, a memoir about his life from Philadelphia to becoming a top defense contractor in San Diego and the Navy in between. And we were done with the third draft. And I said, we've done a beautiful book. We've done a beautiful job. This is someone who knew nothing about writing and dictated most of his book. And we had to like do a lot of fixing on it, but got it done in the airport on a busy schedule. And I said, I, this is a beautiful book. We've done a great job, but who cares? And he looked at me and he went, what do you mean who cares? And I said, how are we going to make this something that stands out amid all the other people that thought that they should write a memoir because he's not famous. And I said, every time you write something, you talk about a system that you've been in, whether it's various parts of the Navy or parts of society in Georgia or the government. And I said, you've got some rules that you've applied in your life to get through those situations that you've then carried into new situations. How many do you think you might have of those rules? He said, I don't know. Let me go, let me go figure it out. So we came up with 15 rules. We then went back through the book on a fourth draft, found all the places the rules would apply and put them into the book. And he became a Wall Street Journal top 10 business book. So we went from, great, this is your life, it, very interesting, but who are you and why should we be dialed in to then you tapped into that, a lot of rules, structures, mm -hmm. things in place. Interesting. Yeah. And we made it something that was for anybody. Like we had a 17-year-old girl read it and she was just blown away. Yeah. She was like, I would take this as my book that I would bring out into the world and use. Because if you think about it, anytime we step into anywhere, if you have these tips that he gives and you understand these rules apply and you're savvy with them, you can figure out who your allies are, who your enemies are. 
you know, you can figure out, you can keep your eyes open and attuned to certain, certain situations, see the red flags, you're going to do pretty well. Interesting. So was it, was it too vanilla before or it was still interesting, but he wasn't giving the reader anything? Exactly. Mm, okay. And so is that something that could be as we all think our lives are fascinating and okay, they won't make a movie about me, but maybe if I write my book, they'll, they'll, they'll right, read it. Right. But, but is, is that what sometimes we're missing is what are we offering the reader? What are we offering the reader? And he actually has some discreet chapters that are standalone movies without a doubt. I mean, he has, you know, USS destroyers getting song. I mean, he has very exciting moments, but that wasn't enough, right? It's great to read that. That adds to his credibility with his knowledge that he's sharing, but standalone, it wasn't a hundred percent enough. Um, when people come to me to write memoirs, I do say, what do you think are your like core areas that you have the, the, the golden thread or the line of something your whole life you've kind of not paid attention to? So it might be money messaging from childhood and then money chaos, money chaos, money chaos, money chaos, till finally they change something and now they might not still be great with money, but they, they're free right? And then all the scenes support that through line. Someone could read that and see their money stories and see their pattern. And so it's like they, they, they are able to have like some kind of epiphany or recovery or learning curve through being entertained in that narrative. How do you know when a writer is holding back? So let's say I bring to you what I think is a traumatic scene and you read it and you say, yeah, it sounds traumatic, but I'm not like, it's missing, something's missing here. When they write more about, okay, so when they write more about the other person in the scene than them, that's how I know they're holding back. They're not talking about themselves. They're taking that other person's inventory and it's more about that other person. So I'll say, well, this isn't a book about that person. How did you feel in that situation? That's a number one example. You can actually see it before they even start writing the book. Typically, um, they'll, a client will come to me. This isn't, I don't mean typically. In this situation, this is how it unfolds. I've got all this other writing that I've done, and I'd love for you to read it all because I think I want to include it all in the book. And I'll go, well, how much of there of it is there? And they'll say, well, I mean, it's like a couple short stories I wrote. I think there, there might be some nuggets in there. And I think, oh, we're never going to use any of this. But I think, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll read it, right? Because I'm getting to know them. And it's, it's, it's almost like part of the process because they're saying to me, this is who I was before I came to you. Will you look at me, right? So they are actually giving me an opportunity to see where they're going to have to go from. And I'll read the material and I'll either, I'll glean from it, they're this kind of writer or this is what's been important to them. We never use that material because I see that they're going to like, I see, I get a good idea. I'm like, okay, this is, I understand where they're starting from. I understand why they're coming to me. I understand why they're showing me this. They're saying, and, and a lot of times um, the material will have pretty graphics in it. And they've spent a lot of time presenting it. Um, 
when they write books with me, I'm like, do not put any graphics in the book while we're writing it. It's just something we have to delete, move around. It's just, it's technical stuff. Words, just words. Don't, dressing it up is not gonna change my edit notes. Like I'm gonna come, to, I'm not, you're not gonna like fool me with the pictures, right? Um, and so that's one way that I see that they might be uh, like a little more resistant to being honest. I had a client once who wrote an entire book with me for two drafts and it was at the end of the second draft. I don't I don't know if I missed it or she just threw it in, kind of like slid it in, but it I read it and I realized that she, something had happened to her as a baby in a crib. It was abuse. And she hadn't even realized, and she didn't even realize she'd written it. And that was, that was painful. That was, that was, it was, it was, it was hard to call it out and it was hard for her to process it. So I think if you want to tell, it'll come out. Right. Whether you know it or not. Whether you know it or not. The yeah. words kind of, they don't lie. They'll be the truth. It's like Freudian slips. Very true. How common is it for a writer to not believe in themselves? I mean, does anybody ever really believe in themselves who's a, that are that is a writer? I mean, I have days. I think it. I think it varies from day to day. I I, I think that um, one thing I've been doing lately is I'm part of a writing group, and we will write and read out loud, and nobody will say anything. You just read and it's thank you. Um, and then another part of that group, which is more of an advanced group, we will read a chapter and then the group will comment on it. And I think that that takes away when you're able to present and perform, you get out of that headspace that I'm all alone. And on any given day, it's all about me. I'm either good or I'm bad. Good or bad. It's hardly ever... Well, that was a good day. It, it's it's never in the middle. I think as a writer, you're either shit or you're amazing. So when you are in a group and you're reading to other people, you realize that there's a lot of good things about your writing. There's some things that need to be fixed about your writing. Oh, I didn't expect that person would like that. Oh, I really like how I sounded. Oh, wow, I'm writing about all these. Gosh, I keep using that voice. Wow, I'm really snarky. There's so many other things to think about versus good or bad. And that's where I try to get writers to work from. Like, what are your strengths? What are some of the areas you could improve? Um, if that's not something you're very interested in getting better, then maybe we'll have someone come in and do maybe like some edits on that for you. Or, you know, uh, but rarely does anyone say, oh, I'm not, I'm not a good writer. I think they're pretty pretty proud of themselves by the time they get through three drafts. If anything, they're very proud of the work they just did week after week, the, 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 the vigilance and the resiliency, no matter what, to sit down at that computer and write a chapter, even if it's something they wanna just throw against the wall in absolute disgust, you know? I've had them turn in chapters and, and say, um, well, I'm turning it in, dot, dot, dot. You're like, <laughs> you know the rest of that sentence is, but I think it's terrible. 
and it never is. What about the flip side, those that think it's amazing and actually maybe they're not seeing themselves <laughs> in, I mean, it, it's, they're blinded by something. That's a great question. I do um, know experience. I, I have had experiences like that where they're on a journey and you can, you can just be their guide. So you can tell that a lot of what they're writing probably belongs in a journal and might need some more extensive therapy before it goes out in the world. It's definitely a little bit of a dump, maybe a little bit of a shit show. Um, but that's not my, I'm not, a, I, I'm not gonna judge their experience. So if they're done with it and they say, and I might say, this felt a little hard. Are you sure you wanna come out and say that about like, your mom or that ex-husband or like, you know, I know we're gonna change some names, but that just was, that's, whoa. <laughs> that's really, you're going for the jugular on that one. I know, that's who they're gonna be. And I don't, I am, I am, you know, hats off to you. Like I've given the disclaimer, um, cause what will happen is, is that they'll go out and try to sell the book and a lot of times with a little bit of my guidance, depending on whether they're still coaching with me or not, but they'll go out and, and I've become friends with most of these people at this point. So um, I am I have a lot invested emotionally with them, but they'll find out sooner or later because someone will say, this feels like an emotional dump. And then they'll have to go, you know, maybe I should like get rid of that one scene with the, you know, and some people need more of a rewrite and they don't have time or money anymore to do a rewrite. So they might have to sit on it for a while. So if it feels really heavy, if, if I'm like, whoa, this is not, I'm not moved, but it, this is almost like uncomfortable for me, then maybe it is this dump. Is, is that how yeah, I Yeah, it's not really for the reader. It's for the writer still. And you wanna get it to a place where it's for the reader to then have their experience and feel like, uh, I just heard someone say that like Angela's ashes, he wrote that for 10 years or something because he wanted to write it until he wasn't angry anymore so that the experience could be for the reader. What is your process for coaching belief into someone? Well, I always just say the fact that they signed up for a one-year program and they're showing up every week is already pretty amazing and really impressive. Um, I'm always giving like positive notes, like love or that was amazing or look how you turned that around or this is incredible. In my one-year program, there isn't a lot of time to not believe in yourself. It's so rigorous and it's so continual that I don't really think it's belief that trips them up. Because once they start getting going, they just wanna do the work and finish it because they're committed. Um, I think belief falls more into uh, people that aren't there yet, right? So that would be more in the own your authorship class. That's people who, you know, it's a lot more like cheerleading and a lot more showing them the light of the vision that they have, that they can get to the finish line, that they are worthy of writing, uh, that they just they you know they they can have that desire as much as anybody else can have that desire. So there's a lot more coaching belief in, 
I would say the uh, in those early early foundational and fundamental classes. But my one year clients, they're pretty badass. They they signing up for a one year program and 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 putting out twenty thousand dollars. You already better believe because <laughs> you're invested. Does anyone get scared because they know people will read it? And they may identify, they may, even though names are changed and think, but they're just afraid, even, you know, yeah. it's traumatic to divulge secrets. I've had clients sit on their books for a little bit longer than I thought they should have, but that was their process that they needed to go through. And then when they did actually release the book, they were ready. Um, and so they're ready, you know, when they're ready. Um, or they had to like, the book had shown them something about themselves. And so they had to go be with that new self for a little while and then maybe start a podcast or open another version of their business. And they knew the book was good. So it's not like it was getting stale. They knew that they could bring it out when they felt like they were in a, in a successful space. And so sometimes that might be six months after they're done. Um, after a year, I start to, to hassle them. What happened to your book? What happened to your book? What happened to your book? And some people, it doesn't happen much anymore, but in my early days of coaching, there were people that wrote the book just to write the book. They, they were done. They were like, I'm good. Something I wanted to do in retirement. I don't really think I have time and energy to go through the whole publishing process. I'm really happy I did it. I feel like I wanted it down on paper for legacy. And um, I just don't think I, I need to publish it. Sometimes I've seen comments that when someone's written about, let's say, a famous parent, that whatever the public's perception of that individual is, they end up getting mad at the at the writer mm -hmm. because maybe they're divulging things that we don't want to see that side of that person. Right? Have you ever talked about, you know, the 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 criticism that could come for divulging secrets or speaking about whatever? That oh yeah, isn't seen as honoring. Whomever. I like to say if you're getting that kind of criticism, you're doing well with your book because nobody criticizes a book nobody cares about. So I believe to get that level of criticism, you have to have a lot of eyeballs on your book, a lot of eyeballs on your book to kind of kick up that kind of, you know, dissent about it, right? That many people have to be reading it. So I, I look at that as kind of a win. It's like, good, they're fired up. They'll tell more people to read it because they're going to be fired up and they're going to be upset. And I haven't had anybody write about anybody famous. Um, I do have a client who wrote about a lot of, there were Hollywood people in it. She hasn't published yet. Um, but she wasn't, she was like, that's the way it went down. And I was there. So it's not like contestable really, because it's exactly what happened and there were witnesses. So, um, you know, we don't like in general, our bubbles burst. If that, if that's the bubble, it's going to be burst for you. And, and you chose that book to read it. Maybe you were looking to get that bubble burst anyway. You just don't know it on a subconscious level. What are five steps to writing a bad book? Only talking about yourself without a, 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 a purpose or a mission of something that you want to have the reader experience, like joy or a journey or 
an emotional release. I'm talking more in memoir and self-help. Um, using language like it and this and maybe and perhaps in like kind of vague terms instead of rewriting the sentences, every sentence should be a thing of beauty. Um, it's a book. Take your time to make every line matter. Don't just think, well, those sentences were good. These can be kind of a slough off. Rewrite every, make every sentence beautiful. Um, don't aim low. Don't decide I'm just gonna write an ebook and give it away for free on your website. I don't think that's not really a book. Honor books. They're boundable. They're thicker. It's something you want to hand to someone and be proud of, not some doorstop or something I'm going to use to balance my computer. Um, that's four. And five would be write one draft and then publish it. Why would someone do that? People do it all the time. They're like, that was brilliant. Nailed it in one shot. And they just discount the whole process that that was just the beginning. You read it, you can tell. You can tell when someone's published the first. You, do, you don't see that in profession, professional, but you see that in, you know, when I was in like networking groups or like, you know, first started my business, people would write books in 90 days or whatever. And you're like, I don't want to read it. <laughs> Please don't give me your book. This is what, I, what I'd be thinking. Because it would just be fluffy. It would spin it where they were... It, they, it was it, too positive? Or no, it just wouldn't have... You can't... I mean, to really dig in and write a memoir in a short period of time, I don't think it's got enough heft. It hasn't been expanded enough. Um, maybe to write a book about dating, like 101 Tips to Date, you might be able to do that in the first draft. Um, or... 10 tips to good sales calls. You might be able to do that in one draft, but I don't tend to work with those books. When you read an author's work and they write about themselves in too positive a light, how do you break that down? Because we've all read books where, oh yeah, it was written by this CEO or this person and they're just telling their grand vision and it paints them as this saint. Whereas when you read about a third party writing about that same individual, it's much juicier. <laughs> it's a full person, warts and all. So how do you, when you see somebody's being too Pollyanna about themselves, how do you say, I, are we really getting honest here? I don't ever get that. I don't ever get that. I think that there's a lot of self-deprecation in the clients that come to me. I think that they've been through enough of the rough road that self-deprecation is not, it's not so far from them. And um, if, if anything, we're trying to get them to be more positive about themselves and, and see where their beautiful gifts are and see how what they've written about and what they've been through informs so much about who they are. Um, I don't, I can't think of one experience where someone just wants to write about 
their positive experiences. I mean, I have had those conversations where people have called me and they're like, well, I'm gonna write a book about, and I and I feel like kind of a cynic going, but where's the darkness, right? Especially when they say, well, there really isn't anything dark about my story. And I think, oh, I don't, I don't, think that, <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> Who wants to read it? <laughs> where did you live? <laughs> yeah. Would you say a lot of new writers write books that are mediocre or have no essence? No, not at all. I mean, I think it's, I think everybody's a new writer on any project you start. I'm a new writer, even though I've been writing since I was 12 years old. Um, anytime you take on a new narrative or a new group of characters or maybe a new style of writing or you're going into new territory, you're new. You know, you might have more of a bag of tools with you. You might know better paragraph structure. You might do better bridges in and out of your chapters. You might know not to bring in too many characters in the whole kitchen sink. You might have your themes broken down, your why broken down, and your bigger message, and you know who you're writing for, and you know what you're an expert in, but you're still new. It's still a fresh slate. You're still gonna have all the same butterflies in your stomach. You're still gonna have all the same you know, disembarking on this like amazing journey. And I always say books are a journey, not a destination. You're really not ever really getting anywhere. Even like you're you're in a journey. Like if you get there, the journey's over. Why, books should continue forever. Explain to me what a bridge is between chapters. A bridge is leading out of one chapter into the next chapter. So it, it either summarizes and concludes the the first, the chapter that's just ending and leads you into the next chapter with a flow. So you don't feel just that one chapter ends and then the next chapter starts. There's some kind of, with fiction, it's a little bit different, especially if you're jumping around locations, but there is some kind of, uh, there's, a, there's a skill involved in leading the reader in through like a tapestry of the chapters and that's what the bridges do. And that's really what we do in the third draft as we work on the bridges. How can you tell a story is boring or it's wandering? What, what tips do you have to, like you said, with the one gentleman who had an interesting career, but mm -hmm. it, it needed it needed um, these 15 tips? I like people to write their story first, first draft before I start killing their babies is what I, the way I call it. And that's, um, I get pretty brutal. Like I'll start to go through and just be like, why do we care? And who's this for? And what does this do? And why do we need this? And if I get some pushback, I'll listen because there could be something that isn't really be, being said. And we'll have sometimes like a debate about it. Like, well, what do you mean that, 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 that you say that this is about that character's evolution? I don't see any evolution here at all. I see her just washing dishes in the kitchen with her grandmother. Where's the evolution? Well, the grandmother threw the thing. And well, you didn't write that the grandmother threw the thing. You just wrote the, oh. Then they go and write it. And it's now a scene that almost is like required. So you don't try to, you don't try to throw up any, you might have entire storylines that just go, right? Because sometimes it seems, all seems relevant on the first draft. And then in the second draft, we don't need everybody to know every single part of your life. We just need the parts that serve the themes that are running through. And if that chunk does not serve the theme, 
they're not going to know the difference whether you kept it out or not because they don't know you. They only know what you're going to tell them you want them to know. So if we're like, oh, Grandpa John, he would make these great birdhouses, and he's just, no, do we, is Grandpa John necessary right. to the story? Oh, he was a really cool guy. He was, I would, we would watch these, no, no, is he necessary? Right. No. Yeah, Grandpa okay. John's gone. Sorry, yeah. And how do people feel about that when it's like, that, that was Grandpa John, he's got to be in the story, he was a big part of the family, but there wasn't enough. And I'm like, you can put Grandpa John in the book for Grandpa John, but that's not going to help your book. We need to focus on the book. What does the book need? What is you know? Maybe you can write a little letter to Grandpa John or something. Put him in the put him in the acknowledgments. <laughs> okay, right. With a picture. No, well, that's right. We're not doing pictures. I was going to say right. the courthouse. No pictures. Like no graphics. 